I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bartell. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, September 25th, 2012. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, we'll hear about a certain type of interfering wave which may be responsible for the surprisingly large size of the March 2011 tsunami. And between us, one or two or three of us were saying, there's an X-wave, there's an X-wave. And people next to us thought we were crazy. And do you have enough omega-3 in your blood? Measuring omega-3 has been something we've done for a long time, 30, 40 years from a research standpoint. And, and now just clinically, it's coming around as a risk factor for heart disease, especially. But first, we begin with a little news in science. One of the biggest energy users in the U.S. is your home. Some designers and builders are working to change that, however, with materials and technologies that reduce home energy consumption to almost nothing and then provide the remaining energy from renewable sources. The official word for one of these homes is a passive house. This week, Denver hosts the 7th Annual North American Passive House Conference. The conference will include a tour with many of the homes in Boulder. Last Friday, KGNU featured one of these homes. It's the brand new, still under construction, personal dwelling of green architect Brian Fuentes. Mud covered, straw bale thick walls will help keep the home warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer. Meanwhile, a decorative patio roof that features a checkerboard pattern that lets in dappled light is actually solar panels installed all on their own without the traditional support of a regular roof. Fuentes says that in addition to being pretty, these see-through solar panels offer several advantages. They let about 15% of the light through. You can actually get sunburned underneath them if you sit out here all day, but uh, if you're just out here for a little bit, it's a nice to be in the shade in the summer. And it lets a little bit of light through, and it, it gets actually about 15 to 20% uh, extra power from light that is reflected in ambient light that hits it from the backside. So they're a little bit more efficient than a normal solar panel. A huge all-glass sliding door leads out to one patio. Unlike the typical two-inch thick sliding glass door, Brian Fuentes says this one is almost five inches thick. There's a ton of energy that leaks through window frames because they're so skinny and they're exposed to the outside. R2 or R3 windows and doors are pretty typical, and this frame is actually about R, almost R7, and the center of glass is R11. So like I said, it's a really super insulated panel. It lets in about 50% of the sun's heat energy in the winter, too, which most American glass is only about 30%. So we get a lot more winter solar gain, too. This Passive House tour has proven so popular, it's already filled for this event. But the organizers say if there's enough interest expressed, there might be a special additional tour of Passive Houses just for residents of our region later on this year. You can find out more about Passive, passive Houses and this week's conference by doing a Google on Passive House Conference. Choosing a home is no small matter. And in this day and age, it's easy to experience information overload. If only we could crowdsource our decision-making. Well, a recent study shows ants do just that. Researchers at Arizona State University tasked ants with choosing new homes, which ants do based on entrance, cavity size, and darkness, among other things. Ants working alone were able to choose well between two nest options, but failed when choosing between eight different nests. The authors infer that the ant operating alone experiences cognitive overload when faced with too many options. Enter the crowd. When the entire ant colony was allowed to explore and decide, the group chose equally well between either two or eight options. Rather than causing chaos, the collective decision-making was stronger than the individual's. 
The authors say they'd like a more complete understanding as to how the ant society works as a kind of distributed brain. They also wonder how these principles apply to handling information access in human society and whether their research might have applications in collective robots. The study was published in the online version of the journal Current Biology. You're listening to How on Earth. I'm Beth Bartel. We start our features today by asking the question, when does 1 plus 1 not equal 2? And allow me to answer. When waves behave non-linearly, according to CU researchers Mark Ablowitz and Douglas Baldwin, the two have been researching how multiple water waves can add together to form a wave with a height much greater than twice the height of either wave. The mathematicians refer to these as X and Y waves, which sounds, well, mathematical, but actually just refers to the shape of the wave front as seen looking down on the wave from above. Rather than being rare, these waves are readily observable and may be the reason that some tsunamis are much larger than anticipated. I spoke yesterday with the pair to find out more about these interesting waves. So, Mark, you first noticed the phenomena in question in 2009? That is correct, yes. Could you tell us about that? Well, I was walking on the beach, and uh, in my mind, for a long time, and I'll get back to it later, uh, I had known about these waves, and I looked on the beach, and I said, gee, I think I saw that. And then I walked a little bit further, I saw it again. So then I came back and told my kids and my wife, who was sitting by the beach, I said, take a look at these waves. I think I've seen X and Y waves, in particular X waves. They come in groups, and they come in pretty regularly in some sense at a certain critical period of time. And then they started to see them. And between us, one or two or three of us were saying, there's an X wave, there's an X wave. And people next to us thought we were crazy. And what do they look like? Well, I have a picture uh, over here, but since we're on radio, think of an X, but sometimes at the X, at the junction, right at the cross point, you get a little blip and it sticks itself up. Sometimes that little blip spreads out into a stem, so it's like two Ys connected. So waves are a three-dimensional phenomena, but when we're talking about these Xs and Ys, we're talking about looking down from above and actually being able to see the pattern on the surface of the that's correct of the water exactly. correct that's correct and you said you had heard about these waves you knew about these waves before what did you know about them well the history is the following in one dimension uh, if you go to uh, mathematics we have one and two dimensional equations well this is what we call a two dimensional phenomenon because you see x's and you see this contour X's. If you just had one dimension, you see a line propagating. Uh, in history, these waves were seen in one dimension in 1830s, uh, in a canal in uh, Scotland. And this fellow did some experiments afterwards and told mathematicians to study them. It was until about 1890s that mathematicians figured out how to describe those waves which was a barge coming, pretty much filling the canal and stopping, and it set off a hump of water that just moved, and it moved down the barge. 
it was 1970s when physicists and mathematicians rediscovered the phenomena but extended it to two dimensions. And then my colleague and I uh, studied this in the context of water waves and showed these extended equations applied and we knew some solutions. Why were physicists of times past interested? Why did this, this man looking in this canal think that mathematicians should study these waves? What was so captivating about these waves? Totally reproducible, totally coherent structures, and he knew n enough about mathematics to say these should be predictable from the equations that we knew in fluid mechanics. Also, with these, uh, the wave that detached from the bow, it went a very long way. I mean, he followed on his horseback for two or three miles until he lost it in the windings of the river, and he thought, wow, how is it that this wave stayed and didn't go away for two to three miles? That's really what captivated him first. So these waves persist more than a normal wave would? Very stable, yes. These are might be said super stable. Can you con comment on the stability? What makes them stable? Well, Is that mathematically describable? Yes, mm -hmm. it's been mathematically described uh, in one dimension and two dimensions why they are very, very stable. But one has to understand there's mathematics, there's canals, and there's the ocean. And they're th very different f f creatures. And to see something with all that chaos in the ocean also somehow underlies the, the extreme stability of these waves. Whenever they can peek out, they do. But there's a lot going on that doesn't let them. And Douglas, you uh, made a bit of a trek to see them firsthand. How hard was it for you to find them? So we drove up and down looking at the different beaches, and one of my friends said, well, check out this Venice beach. And I thought, oh, you know, the Muscle Beach, this is not going to be what I want. But we drive out there, go to it, and it's this perfectly flat beach. And as we're walking out, uh, my uh, parents went with me, and we saw these X waves just right as we were walking up, trying to get my camera going, oh, my, it's one of them. Of course, we missed it. But, uh, we waited there a few more hours and saw all kinds of these wonderful phenomenon. And what's interesting about these waves other than stability? Is there anything else that, that stands out about these waves? Why to study them? Well, there's a few things. What's interesting about that stem is it can be much taller than the incoming waves. So if each incoming wave is height one, you'd think, oh, it might be of height two. But in fact, it might be closer to height three and a half, four. Why is that? It's the nonlinearity that we're interested in, which is a complicated concept, but that's what allows it to get much taller. One plus one isn't two. Exactly. And this is um, very much real world applicable other than just uh, noticing them on the on the beach, right? So what are the applications of this concept to the, the tsunami that devastated northeastern Japan in March 2001? So in fact, um, there was just an article about this in 2011, 2012, excuse me, March 2012, which was about a year after the devastating earthquake, where they pointed out that uh, the tsunami in Japan was extra devastating because it had these merging points. If you look at those merging points, those are no doubt X waves. Now, they were very close to shore. Had they been further from shore, they would have had more time to have nonlinearity act, and they could have been more than just factor of two. 
could have been what we're talking about, factors of three, maybe three and a half, even four. So the location of where the tsunami is could be affected, and the fact that there's this merging phenomena that can occur if the uh, earthquake that induced the tsunami happened to be on fault lines that converged in the right way. You said if the wave had started farther out in the water, it might have actually been bigger. So do these waves actually grow over time, or over distance, rather? You might say they form. They form the X that's natural to the equations that govern it somehow, or natural to the ocean itself. So if they form naturally, uh, and then there's more time to form, and then they could hit the uh, shore with greater force. And I point out that in the... uh, earthquake-induced tsunami in Indonesia in about 2004, not only were 200,000 people killed in Indonesia, but 75,000 people were killed in Sri Lanka, which was four or 5,000 miles away. And that's the kind of thing that could happen. You could get this X-wave forming. It could be near Indonesia. Near Indonesia would be a factor, too, but way over in Sri Lanka, it could be much worse. On a much smaller scale, you can observe these waves at beaches around the world. Professor Mark Ablowitz explains what to look for. Go to an ocean. Go to your favorite ocean. Not too close to Colorado, but pick your favorite beach. Take one that has fairly flat and preferably near a jetty so that you get a, in waves in two directions. The dominant wave and interference, right. And you'll probably see it. And then go to our videos and Douglas's yes. photographs and start comparing, and then write us a letter of how complicated the shapes are that you see. That was Applied Mathematics Professor Mark Ablowitz and doctoral candidate Douglas Baldwin talking to KGNU about waves that, when added together, amount to more than just the sum of their parts. This research was published earlier this month in the journal Physical Review E. To see photos and videos of these X and Y waves, Google Mark Ablowitz, A-B-L-O-W-I-T-Z, or check out Douglas Baldwin's site at www.douglasbaldwin.com slash nl-waves.html. Each website links to the other, and both lead to more on the math behind this watery phenomenon. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. It's widely accepted that omega-3 supplements are good for many things, especially your heart, and that fish oil is high in omega-3. But earlier this month, Greek researchers made a splash with a meta-analysis that concluded that fish oil supplements do not help your heart. They came to this conclusion even though in their analysis, people taking fish oil pills or eating fish had 9% fewer deaths from heart disease and 11% fewer heart attacks than people who don't. Fans of omega-3 shot many other harpoons into the study, and today we'll look at one of their more compelling complaints. It's that the amount of omega-3 that people's body absorb depends on many things, and the Greek scientists did not examine studies that checked omega-3 fatty acid levels where they count the most, in people's blood. To find out more about why blood levels of omega-3s might matter, up next, How on Earth's Shelley Schlender talks with Doug Bebus. Bebus is part of the team that years ago basically discovered omega-3s. 
He's a two-time winner of the American Chemical Society's Award in Chemical and Analytical Chemistry. Bebas says that most Americans have very low levels of omega-3s, and they'd be healthier if their levels were higher. Let's go now to Shelley, talking with Doug Bebas among the whirring machines in his lab in Minnesota. They begin with the animal research that revealed the importance of omega-3s. You were doing animal research on fatty acids. Yes, and human study at the same time. But the early aha moment was animals getting fish oil didn't die from sepsis, whereas animal being reared on omega-6 rich diets died like crazy. The trick, though, is to get people to eat the right way before they have an event in the hospital or injured to include more things like fish, less carbohydrate, or strategies to improve health and to save your life potentially when you have a physiological challenge. Why is it important to do this before you get sick? Why can't you just do it when you get sick? What you're eating like and what you have as your background diet can affect what your inflammatory response is. And eating lots of fruits and vegetables gives you lots of antioxidants. And we know that antioxidants help in a lot of things. They also help during times of ischemia and reperfusion injury. That means if you have a heart attack or if you have a big bad bruise. Exactly. A heart attack is a great example where your, your heart might stop so your peripheral tissues don't get as much blood. That's ischemia or lack of oxygen. Or a big bad bruise like a car accident where you crush half your pelvis or break your leg or have a head trauma that starts your body's healing response. Our body's healing response is pretty powerful. But I hear you saying that part of that response depends on having the right nutrients to fuel the response. And you think omega-3 fatty acids are a big one. They are. You take certain fatty acids and convert them into cosinoids and prostaglandins, the, the little hormone compounds that coordinate things like uh, blood pressure and vasodilation and gastric tone, heart tone, all these things that are important to life. They also fuel the inflammatory response, and omega-3 fats compete with omega-6 fats to kind of attenuate that inflammatory response. Now, you mentioned that it's good for people to eat a lot of fish to keep their omega-3 fatty acids up. If I had too much inflammation in my body, could I still be omega-3 deficient? It depends how much fish you're eating, how much omega-6 is in your diet, lots of factors. Illness is a stress on omega-3 stores and omega-6 stores. We spent years looking at thousands of different patients from different medical populations, different types of illnesses, and it was clear that that being sick uh, was not healthy for your omega-3 blood levels. And that has to do with oxidation and also the inflammatory response that takes omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids out of the membrane where they normally live to make those hormone-like compounds out of it. We may not be able to restore those as well, especially if we have a bad diet where we're not eating lots of those special omega-3 fats. Well, if this is so important, why don't my doctors check my omega-3 fatty acid level? It's new. Good interventions, good medicine takes 10 or 20 years to reinvent itself sometimes, but it's coming around. Measuring omega-3 has been something we've done clinically for a long time, you know, 30, 40 years, or from a research standpoint, and, and now just clinically. It's coming around as a risk factor for heart disease, especially. Uh, the data is fairly strong, showing that people that have low levels of omega-3 are much, at a much greater risk for dying from cardiovascular disease, and people that have high levels of omega-3 are at a much lower risk for cardiovascular disease. And you have with you, do you want to show what your tests are? We have an omega-3 blood test kit. It's a way of learning what your omega-3 levels are, the types of healthy fat in your blood. From a research standpoint, we used to require people to get blood draws, and and we developed technology based on our work and based on the work of others that you can just use a finger stick now to get a blood sample to measure omega-3 levels. 
So what you're doing as you do this is you're not really checking the blood itself. You're going to be checking what's in the membrane, the cell membrane of the blood, to see what kind of fatty acid content is in the skin of the blood cell. Exactly right. So that reflects what's in our diet, the kind of foods we're eating, whether you know, we have too much omega-6, not enough omega-3, or adequate levels of omega-3, ideally. This test is called the Holman Omega-3 Test, after Dr. Ralph Holman, who I worked with in developing this test for the past 20-some years. Uh, Ralph was the man who actually invented the term omega-3 fats, the, the man who discovered the essential nature of fat, uh, or in terms of omega-3, and omega-3 metabolism. And we spent a 15 years looking at different populations around the world, what kind of diets they were eating and, and how much omega-3, how much omega-6 they had in their blood uh, with the revelation that Americans don't have a whole lot of omega-3 uh, in their blood. So this is a way for people to see how much omega-3 they have in their blood. What's with us Americans? We don't have enough vitamin D. We don't have enough omega-3. Let's see you do this. Let me get All where right. I can watch it. Hold on a sec. And then this is an automated lancet that comes with the kit. Um, you can't see the, the needle, so that's what I like about it. Uh, and then you prick your finger, you suppress down just a little bite, and you squeeze or milk your finger to express some blood. Now, this is not an F is this an FDA approved test, or is it more no, something is, that? No, this is not meant to medically diagnose, um, uh, even though we do clinical type testing with fatty acids. Uh, this, is, this is to measure your omega 3 levels. That's. That's it. Does it correlate with anything? Does it correlate with C-reactive protein or with somebody getting sick all the time or with cholesterol levels? It, it correlates with a number of things. Cardiovascular outcomes are probably the most well-recognized. Low blood levels uh, have an increased risk for, for dying from cardiovascular disease. A man named Siskovec, Dr. Siskovec, in the Journal of American uh, Medical Association in 1995 showed that. Uh, folks that have a blood level about twice the normal level from about 4%, 8%, have a 90% reduction in, in risk of death uh, from cardiovascular disease. So a big risk reduction. What do you consider the, and this is to check again to see what the fatty acid content is of the cell membrane and what percentage of it is omega-3, omega-6, and other fatty acids. Uh, we like to see people that have a, a healthy blood level of omega-3 above 9% of their total fatty acids. Most Americans have around 4 to 5% of their fatty acids as omega-3. We would like to see people above 9%. Can you have too much? No, and I'm asked that question all the time. Uh, it's, it's uh, from an epidemiological standpoint, you look at populations that consume tremendous amounts of marine organisms, animals, and that would be Greenland Eskimos, Greenland Inuits, uh, people eating all their fat from marine sources, essentially fish oil every day, uh, and, uh, and they, they thrive, they flourish. Uh, three grams a day of long-chain omega-3 is regarded safe by our Food and Drug Administration. That's about the same as 10 grams a day of fish oil. That's a great dose that brings you up to healthy blood levels quite rapidly, independent even if you're eating lots of omega-6. If you can reduce your omega-6 intake, your omega-3 levels are much higher, much faster with lower doses of omega-3, but if you insist on eating a regular diet enriched in omega-6, it takes more omega-3. That was Shelley talking with scientist Doug Bebus in his laboratory in St. Paul, Minnesota. Doug Bebus is an omega-3 fatty acid expert. You can find out more about Doug Bebus and his omega-3 tests at the website aminoacids.com.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. Thanks to Joel Parker for running the board today in addition to co-hosting. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, a.k.a. Techler. Additional music today from Boulder musician Jesse Mano. Today's show was produced by Beth Bartell. Can't listen to Hell on Earth at our regular time? No worries, just go to hellonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. Or download the free Stitcher app for your smartphone and find us there. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Beth Bartel. And I'm Joel Parker.